This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is the New Books Network Seminar Podcast. Welcome to the show, and thanks very much for joining me today for an interview with Yves Citon about his new book, The Ecology of Attention. This was translated from the French by Barnaby Norman, and it came out in an English version with Polity Press in 2017. Now, when you think about attention, you might be immediately thinking about an individual really focusing on a particular object or event at hand. And one of the really helpful things about this book is that Eve turns us toward a much more capacious um, and a much more kind of rich and generative way of thinking with what it is to pay attention and what attention might be, not just in economic terms, right? Thinking of attention as a resource, thinking about uh, labor and value, but moving toward thinking about attention ecologically and ecologically, E-C-H-O, as we'll get to um, at the end of the interview. Now, what you'll hear over the course of the conversation are indications of how, I think, important and how productive this book is for not just thinking about um, theories of attention at the collective level, at the individual level, at the joint level. I mean, the book does all of that. And so if you're interested in um, the psychoanalytic theories of Freud, if you're interested in the work of Simon Don and the work of Gabriel Tard and the work of... Um, uh, Willem Flusser, as we'll talk about, you'll find all of that in the book. But you'll also find a discussion of why we should care, what are the stakes, and how we might, in rethinking attention, create tools for ourselves to collectively produce a more nourishing future um, than some of us uh, might be experiencing in our present right now. Um, and so the book is really about, I think, coming together to think about this in terms of its stakes, not just for the individual, but for the classroom, its stakes for performance, and its stakes for really producing um, a more nourishing and healthy possible future. So we'll get to all of that toward the end of the interview. Um, and it's a, a relatively long one, so I'll leave you to it. In the meantime, I'll just say I highly recommend the book. It's a super pleasure to read, and I'm really grateful to you as ever for spending time and for spending your attention listening to us discuss the work. So I hope you enjoy um, and have fun. 
I'm here today with Yves Citon to talk about his new book, The Ecology of Attention. Welcome to the New Books Network seminar, Eve, and thank you for writing a book that I am really excited about because I think it's really important. It's really beautifully written. Um, and thank you also for making time to talk with me about it today. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Carla, for inviting me. And uh, I'm really excited about being on the on the network, which I listen to a lot. I discovered a lot of things through your interviews, so I'm very honored to be here today. Well, thank you so much. Um, so, Eve, you have published a ton of books. It's really impressive on a really wide range of topics. Your scholarship seems, at least from my perspective, really beautifully transdisciplinary. What brought you to, and what brought your attention to attention specifically as a topic of scholarly inquiry? So there were two sources of it. One was that some friends of mine in the in the journal Multitude were talking about attention economy earlier on for France in the in the 2000s. But then it came mostly from my work as a, a literary scholar, because basically I, I started in 18th century literature in my career, and um, I got some somehow annoyed by uh, so many books and dissertations, wonderful books and wonderful dissertations being always about Jean-Jacques Rousseau in French literature or Diderot or Voltaire or maybe, I don't know, uh, half a dozen of authors who were who got all of the attention of uh, 18th century specialists or most of it. And especially in order to discuss contemporary issues, people would go back to Rousseau and it's great to go back to Rousseau. But I thought there were so many authors in the 18th century that either I didn't know or I knew there existed, but nobody paid attention to them, that I gave myself sort of a stupid challenge, which is just take one of these guys, more or less randomly, not totally, but more or less randomly, and just decide a priori that it's as great a writer as Denis Diderot or Jean-Jacques Rousseau, and just read him as if you would read with so just the, the same type of attention as you would do with a, a canonical author. And I did that with a guy called Charles Tiffany de la Roche, who was a physician in Normandy who wrote a dozen books between 1749 and 1765. And three years later, I am totally convinced uh, that uh, Charles Tiffany de la Roche, even if almost nobody talks about him, is just as central and interesting and, and fabulous a writer as uh, Jean-Jacques Rousseau could be. So then I thought, oh, that tells me something on attention. And maybe I should uh, explore that issue of attention, not just from a literary point of view, but more broadly, what do people say about it? And uh, what can I say maybe to, to, to add something to this discussion? I love that. And one of the things um, that's clear to me right now um, from the beginning of the conversation that speaks to the book is that it seems like from the genesis of the project, the connection between attention and reading, right, modes of reading was there, right, from the very beginning. And I mention this for listeners because um, as listeners will uh, possibly here over the course of our conversation, the issue of what it is we're doing when we read and how we might think and practice reading more capaciously as a way of inhabiting the world more fully, um, in a sense, right? And inhabiting the world together more fully. Uh, it's a really powerful lesson that for me comes out of the book. And so it's fascinating to hear that this was something that um, shaped your practice from the beginning of the process. Project. Mm. So, 
So Eve, tell us, oh, sorry, go on. Yeah, and maybe, as you said, reading is both where I come from uh, to, the, to the issue of attention, but also it's uh, what I faced from the very beginning of the book, uh, because we live in a context where everybody talks about a crisis of attention, about shorter and shorter attention spans. So writing a book is a sort of a paradoxical attitude when you talk about attention, because what we say most of the time is that we don't have the time or the attention to read books. Uh, so how within this context can I write, I mean, it's not massive, but it's still, I don't know, two or 300 pages. Uh, can I expect my readers to read uh, two or 300 pages? How can I design the book so that, uh, well, as people say, you don't have enough attention, maybe I should write the book differently. And so I, I imagined a few, a few features that allows the reader to glance through the book in, uh, in a few minutes to sort of see not only with a table of contents, but with sort of small caps in the, in the body of the text, what could be uh, attractive or interesting or to be glanced over in each part of the book. And so writing a book that can be read in a situation that is characterized by a short, uh, short supply of attention is a challenge in itself. That's right. And so this is great because I was going to mention that the book opens, right, um, with this question to the reader of, you know, how um, on earth am I expecting you to pay attention to this book while also talking about the fact that, right, like we don't have any time um, to pay attention to books. Um, but one of the things that's really interesting along the lines of what you're saying is you have incorporated roughly 100 key expressions, right? Um, and you were just kind of um, gesturing toward this. And so what that means is that for um, listeners who become readers, when you pick up the book, there are various ways to navigate the rhythms of reading this book. And occasionally um, you'll turn a page and you'll come to an expression in all capital letters and then an explanation in italics. And what this does is it allows us, I think, um, to focus on some key concepts that I think are I think extraordinarily powerful, not just for your study of attention, but potentially to think with beyond as well. So this is something about the book, um, Eve, that I really appreciated. Thank and you. I think that really speaks to, yeah, um, this interest in the practice of reading. So you mentioned a little bit about how you came to a, a attention, right, as a topic. But right from the beginning of the book, this study is also a study of the relationship between attention and economy. And even as we're going to, by the end of the book, move away from economy as a focus, we kind of need to start there in order to understand what we're moving away from and why. So Eve, as a way of bringing us into the flesh of the book, can you introduce this concept that comes up right at the beginning and this is the notion of an attention economy. What's important for you um, that we understand about the notion of attention economy before we move right. on? Right. Thank you. Yeah, you're right. That's where I start from. And in a way, the whole book is an attempt to go beyond uh, talking about attention in terms of economics. But at the same time, I think it's a good way to start from. And we shouldn't just despise it or think this is a, a misleading way to approach it. No, it is very important. It's not sufficient but it is uh, necessary and very important. So there are a lot of ways to talk about an attention economy. Uh, most radically, uh, some writer in the 1990s said that we were moving to a whole new 
conception of uh, econo the economy and economics. So far, we conceived of economics in terms of mainly production. Uh, you have scarce resources and you try to produce as much and of as good a quality as you can by using these scarce resources. Uh, so economics is about production. Uh, to talk about an attention economy is to say that, okay, once you have produced something like a book or a movie or a video or, or so many other things, uh, well, the book or the movie is worth literally nothing if nobody pays attention to it. So there is another resource in economics, which is just as important and which becomes more and more important as our economies revolve more and more around information, knowledge, culture, and things like that. Uh, and it is the, the, the resource of attention. So you could say, if you're radical, uh, attention is becoming the most important, most precious resource. Uh, the attention economy turns upside down all that we've uh, been talking about in terms of economics because it's a matter of reception and not of production. Once the book has been written, printed, distributed, uh, again, as I said earlier, do you have the time to read uh, 300 pages uh, or not? So that's one way to say it. And the way some people would present it is to say, oh, attention is becoming even more uh, powerful than money or capital itself. Because once you get attention, you can translate that into money. You can sell attention. And if you look at um, just the stock exchange values, what over the last 20 years has gained the most uh, leverage in terms of stock exchange, capitalization, and all that, it's companies like Google or Facebook who do what, who are free apparently for us when we, when we use it, but uh, it's free because they sell our attention. So you do have not only uh, a possible turning, turning upside down of economics from the pole of production to the pole of reception, but you have symptoms of that, which is the high capitalization of uh, Google or Facebook, whose all, uh, whose most of the income comes from selling that rare and precious resource, which is attention. Now, I think this is an important argument. I would be uh, only half convinced by this type of argument, and precisely for reasons of ecology. Uh, production is still very much central, and what we are seeing now is uh, a threat of collapse of our modes of producing, modes of living, modes of communicating, uh, because we haven't paid attention to natural resources and to the way nature needs its own rhythm or our environments need their own uh, rhythm, pace, and respect in order to produce what we live on. So this talk about an attention economy and a brand new thing taking over and reversing all we've seen, I think it's both interesting, a symptom, but a symptom of novelty and a symptom of blindness. Uh, water is a resource just as important as uh, attention. Uh, and it's the, uh, the, the links and the articulation between how we devote our attention to water or to sports or to marriage of the Queen of England or whatever, that will decide 
uh, over the, the use and the sustainability of our resources in the future. So for me, an attention economy, it's not something that sort of takes over and reverses anything that came before. This is an illusion, but it is something to take into account because clearly new things are, are happening here. And if I can just add one, one more thing to that, there's a, a wonderful book that came out three or four years ago called The Attention Merchant by Tim Wu, uh, in which he shows, that's a very uh, interesting uh, historical fact, that in, I think it's 18, in the 1830s in New York, uh, somebody had the idea of selling a newspaper half of the price that it costed to, to produce it. Uh, uh, and so obviously everybody bought his newspaper because it was much cheaper. And he had the idea of selling half of the price of the newspaper by people who, who purchase it and half to um, announcers to people who would put uh, a little information or what we would what would be called later commercials in it and so forth. So this attention economy, it's at least 150 or almost 200 years old. Uh, we have been talking about it very seriously from the 1970s, say, and. The, the expression attention economy became very popular with the rise of the internet in uh, 19, around 1995. Uh, so yes, something new is happening at the anthropological scale. Something new is happening in the history of capitalism, but it would be misleading to think that it turns everything upside down and that the old economy is, not, is no longer relevant. Fabulous. You've just hit two of the three deceptive commonplaces that the book challenges, right? So right at the beginning, you tell us there are three assumptions um, that are deceptive um, that we might make that the book is going to challenge. The first one you've talked about is assuming that the functioning of our attention is beholden to an economy. Um, and so we've already talked about the fact that we're going to move beyond that. The second is that this idea of an attention economy is new. You've already mentioned that this is something that um, we've talked um, about um, at least, or this is something that's been the case at least for the last 150 years with capitalism. And the third one is the one that I'd like to ask you to talk a little bit more about. And this is the idea um, that an approach to attention should be necessarily individualist. Most books on the history and nature of attention, and I, I've read a number of them, right? And you mentioned this later, focus on the phenomenon of attention as an individual phenomenon. Instead, what you're going to do in the first part of the book is help us understand the way attention is actually collective. So you bring up in the first chapter of the book the principle of trans-individual attentionality. Through me, it's always our collective thinking and feeling who is paying attention. You say the attention economy is fundamentally collectivist. So Eve, since this is such a crucial part of the book, and this really is the focus of part one of the book, can you talk about the importance of the collective orientation of attention here in the book? Right. Thank you. Yeah, that's very important too. Um, I designed the book uh, sort of, again, reverse from the, the, the fashion that we usually talk about attention uh, intuitively for all of us, 
what matters is first my attention and the, it seems to us at least, and then the attention that uh, other people or that we could have collectively, etc. So what am I doing now? What do I pay attention now? When I drive a car, do I listen to what my neighbor says? Do I listen at the red light and so forth? Uh, so there is something in our experience of the world that uh, filters everything through my individual attention. And therefore, when I think about attention, I could start from that. That's not stupid at all. That's, that's pretty that's a pretty good point. But it so happens that most of the talks that have been developed and most of the, the knowledge that has been developed about attention uh, starts from here. Uh, attention has been an issue in psychology. And psychology would start by, uh, in, the, in the 18th century, in the 19th century, by uh, just measuring very precisely uh, what can my eyes see, what can my ears uh, hear. Uh, so we start from our body, our capacity as bodies, or our performance uh, in attentional thing. How many uh, words can I remember, calculations, and so forth. Uh, and then we uh, maybe... Later on, we think, oh, I'm not alone in the world and there are other people around me, so I need other people, other individuals to pay attention to me, to fall in love with me, to uh, ask me how I'm doing and all that. Um, so this is dominant in terms of psychology, in terms of economics also, because economics, even if it's a social science, is based uh, in its ontology, if you want, on uh, individual preferences, uh, the economy works on the basis of individuals or households, uh, but not as a collective thing in itself. So I reversed that and I thought, oh, I cannot understand what I pay attention to if I don't ask, ask myself first what we collectively pay attention to. I was mentioning earlier the marriage of queens or princesses of England, uh, sports or all these things. It's not me one morning who is asking myself, oh, did the princess of England get married or when will she get married? It's because people happen to talk about princesses uh, and marriage that, well, I see it on the news, even if I don't care about it, I cannot escape to sort of be affected by it. So, yeah, I talk about it because we, or even I refuse to talk about it, but because we talk about it. So I think we really have to start with this collective attention. Now, this collective attention can be seen on, on many levels. Uh, there's one level that I totally ignore in the book. Uh, one reason it's because it has been uh, developed in, by sociologists in other books, so I didn't have much to say to that, but I think I should add it because it's very important, is what we can call organizational attention. Uh, what is a workplace? What is a company? What is an administration, if not a way collectively to organize individuals' attention? You will pay attention to this. You will answer that type of query. You will uh, deal with students in terms of uh, teaching them this. You will. So an organization, a uh, human organization, is a way to structure the distribution of attention. And that's very important in all of our lives. What we do when we are uh, workers, when we're employed, employees, is devote our, our attention, our individual attention, to what the company, the administration, etc., cetera, uh, has uh, decided we should devote our attention to. But I start with something even more distributed, more diffuse, harder to see, which is what media do to us. And as I was saying for sports or, uh, or marriages, um, uh, we it's like we're immersed in topics, in things that we collectively talk about, whether we like it or not, 
It's just what we talk about. And uh, reciprocally, uh, we could say that we are immersed in blindnesses or in silences about other things where very rarely do we uh, encounter the fact that it could be a problem or that it is a problem. And the social collective distribution of uh, our collective attention, I think, is what we really should uh, question first. And that requires a theory uh, of media. So in this book uh, devoted to attention, I have a first chapter which uh, talks about, I think they translated it into uh, media enthrallments. Um, and in, mm-hmm. in, in French, it was a rather different word. And uh, maybe I, I go back to the French because it had more uh, more meaningful um, uh, connotations, if you want. The, the word we use in French is envoûtement. Envoûtement. And envoûtement means both enthrallment, so it's a very good translation. I really thank the, the translator for the, the wonderful job he did. Uh, uh, media spells or media enthrallments. But envoûtement in French, it means both the spell that uh, a witch would cast on, on someone, but also it refers to vaults, a voûte. Une voûte, when you go to a, you know, building a church or something, you have a voûte that uh, the structure of the voûte, of the vault, decides on the echo. It's like an echo chamber if you want. And I like talking about mediatic uh, envoûtement because it's both something that looks like witchcraft. Why do we care about people running, 11 people running after uh, a ball on a field? Why do we care? It's not written in nature. It's not, I mean, there's something that has led us collectively to care about uh, soccer. Uh, and it's, it's like witchcraft. Why this rather than another sport? Or okay, so there's the witchcraft type of uh, aspect to it. But there's also an echo chamber. It's because when I talk about soccer or about certain things, it resonates. Uh, I talk about other things, and it doesn't resonate that much. Uh, quite recently, I discovered the, the, the apparently there's a big problem with sand, a huge shortage of sand, and we're destroying places mm-hmm. and places, including the ocean, just because we so desperately need sand to build skyscrapers and highways and all that. And uh, we didn't discover it now. People have been doing small documentaries and writing research on that for years and years. And we do hear a few problems with ecology, global climate change, etc. We start to talk about it quite seriously, even if we don't do what we should. Uh, but another massive problem like sand, that's the example I take to say, I don't know, who is aware of a major shortage of sand. Very few people in my in, among the people I, I talk to. So why do we talk a lot about certain issues and not about others? And I think we cannot answer this uh, this type of question without looking at how the media sphere, the way information and affection circulate among us, how it is structured basically by capitalism, by uh, supply and demand, by the laws of the market, and by commercializing our attention, uh, not out of bad will or out of uh, some crazy idea of conquering the world, but just because if you're a journalist, you need to sell your newspaper or your TV channels, etc., and you sell it by attracting attention. And this competition, this market competition, and this, uh, this competition for capital, uh, both in terms of money and in terms of attention capital, I think is uh, what uh, swerves our, our collective uh, development towards certain issues that, if you look at it from a certain distance, may not be that crucial uh, and away from other issues that, are, that would be extremely crucial for 
our survival uh, as a species, for just uh, leaving a decent world to our sons and, and granddaughters. Uh, and uh, I think we should start by uh, trying to understand better these, these media enthrallments or these envoûtements mediatiques. Fabulous. Thank you so much. And the second and third chapters of the book really get into this in detail. So the second chapter um, looks at what you've described, right? Um, it, it raises the axiom of attentional capitalism. In the words of the book, attention is in the process of becoming the hegemonic form of capitalism. And chapter two really takes us through in detail the way this is happening in terms of labor, right? The way that looking at an object represents labor that increases the value of that object. It looks at the way media are attention banks. It looks at the way attention becomes a currency. Um, and it looks at the kinds of new class struggles that result um, from all of this. And we don't, we won't have time to talk about this in detail, but I want to mention for listeners that chapter two really gets into this um, in beautiful detail before moving on to chapter three, um, which I think taking a page from Ken Wark's work on the hacker class and the vectoralist class. Um, it goes into the kind of class um, consequences of the electrification or digitalization of attention um, and asks the question and invites us to dwell in the question, how can you take advantage of the vectoral power of the digital, right? Vectoralist coming from Ken's work without allowing yourself to be imprisoned in the cages of digitalization. And so chapters two and three really get into this in quite beautiful detail. But then after, um, and I'm going to move at a pretty rapid clip, Eve, so sure, jump sure, in if fine, there's anything. <laughs> um, but after setting the stage and introducing us to the nature and consequences of this scale of collective attention, part two of the book moves us to the scale of joint attention. This is super fascinating for me, and I'm going to ask you a bunch of stuff about this. Okay, so the second part of this book deals with situations of what you call joint attention. These are more localized situations where, in the words of the book, I know I'm not alone in the place where I find myself and where my consciousness of the attention of others affects the orientation of my own attention. Okay, so you talk about three phenomena characterizing these situations of joint attention. One is reciprocity. Attention must be able to circulate bi-directionally between parties involved. The second is a striving for affective harmonization. Um, in other words, you can't be truly attentive to another without being considerate toward them, right? And then improvisation practices is this third phenomenon. Showing yourself, this is in the words of the book, to be attentive to the attention of the other requires learning to get out of pre-programmed routines so you can open yourself to the risks and also the techniques of improvisation. Now, I mentioned this in detail, and I wanted to make sure to get these details on the board because one of the stakes of this chapter and of these principles um, really profoundly affects any of us who are in the classroom. So you talk about the way that this manifests in teaching situations and the stakes of this in order to understand what might not actually work about MOOCs. 
So teaching and MOOCs, um, these are uh, really fascinating, I think, for a lot of our listeners. Eve, I'm now going to hit the ball to you. Um, For you, what's particularly interesting about the way this plays out in terms of teaching and uh, pedagogy in the classroom? Mm, Thank you very much. Yeah, that's a very rich uh, topic, which I could only sort of give a few few hints uh, in the book, trying to go uh, fast enough. But you're right, we should, uh, I mean, a lot of people think about it and, and write very interesting things about it. Now, maybe I would take two um, uh, counter examples of uh, uh, healthy, uh, good, and ecological uh, attention in the classrooms. Not to condemn these other things as such. I don't believe in good and evil. I just think certain things are better and other are worse in different situations. So it's not evil that I'm going to name, but things that are maybe abused or that on which we put too much hope and that short circuits, so the care we should take of our attention. One you mentioned is MOOCs. Uh, the other one is Ritalin, the, the, the very usual treatment for what is named as attention deficit disorder or hyperactivity. Um, and I think, uh, let's start by, uh, by uh, Ritalin first. Um, uh, what we need to do is think uh, the attention of kids in the classroom not as being sufficient or insufficient, not being disciplined or indisciplined in itself, again, from the point of view of an individualistic approach, which is what's being done now, but from an ecological approach in thinking in terms of environments, in thinking in terms, as you said, joint attention and reciprocity. Uh, so, If a kid doesn't sit down in class or doesn't pay attention to what he or she is told, uh, there's one uh, easy answer, one that short-circuits other question, which which would be to diagnose him or her as uh, ADHD, attention deficit disorder, and uh, prescribe uh, medication, chemistry, Ritalin, uh, which apparently helps that kid to sit down and listen to what he or she is told, which is, uh, in a way, uh, what we need or what we want, at least. Uh, now, what this short circuit uh, prevents from happening is uh, raising a number of questions as to why isn't the kid paying attention to what he's being told? And as a teacher, uh, I must face that question. What I am saying, is it that interesting for the people who listen to me? Uh, I'm more than 55 years old. Maybe certain things are very important for me, and maybe they're not that relevant or that important for uh, 20 years old. So uh, to question whether what you're saying is uh, really of interest would be one way to to approach this question. Again, not to say that nobody should take Riddle in in any circumstances, but maybe we should ask other questions. Second question is uh, the class environment. Again, as an ecosystem, is not just kids pay, paying attention to teachers. It's teachers paying attention to kids. It's principals paying attention to teachers. It's a board of education paying attention to kids and teachers and principals. So it's a very complex uh, entanglement of uh, attentions. Some of them may very well be deficient. And the deficiency, instead of putting it on the kid, and you're going to take Ritalin and the deficiency will be taken uh, taken away, very largely often it's our society as a whole which doesn't finance education as it could and as it should and the deficiency is then located in the individual children 
who has to take some some Ritalin. Uh, but maybe having 30 kids in a classroom at certain ages, maybe it's just not, it's not good. It's not possible. I don't know if it was possible in the past, but it's not possible nowadays. So we have to adapt and maybe reduce uh, classroom size. So uh, again, Ritalin clearly uh, takes it from the point of view of the individual instead of recognizing the, the meshwork or the entanglement of attention that constitute our attentional environment or milieu of attention uh, or ecosystem or attentional ecosystems. Now, MOOCs uh, would be the other thing, would be to reduce, or in a way it's, it's, uh, it's consistent with the previous one, is to say what happens in a classroom is just talk, discourse, concept, knowledge, information, which is given from a person who knows, the teacher, to a person who doesn't know the, the student. Uh, and as long as we have the attention of the student to what the teacher says, that's all that's needed because it goes one way uh, and it's just a matter of absorption of, of knowledge. Uh, well, that's one of the models behind MOOCs, whereas I think, and again, I'm not the only one, a lot of people say that, MOOCs, just like Ritalin in certain exceptional cases, it could be uh, necessary or it could be useful. Uh, it is great to have the opportunity to listen to a great professors uh, do his class. Uh, you, instead of paying, I don't know, $50,000 a year to go to Harvard or Princeton or University of Pittsburgh, luckily it's less expensive, but maybe not everybody go to the university can go to the University of Pittsburgh to, to listen to uh, you teaching. So maybe to have a recording of uh, a good professor doing a good class is fantastic. I know I listen to, to a lot of Deleuze, Gilles Deleuze uh, courses. They've all been put on the internet. You can listen for hours and hours uh, courses by Gilles Deleuze and it's just fabulous. And okay, so MOOCs in itself or the diffusion of knowledge uh, through uh, the internet is a fantastic thing. Now, it becomes very dangerous if we think it can substitute, it can replace uh, teaching as such because what is exchange in a classroom it's, as you said, a, a tuning, effective tuning, reciprocal tuning of behaviors between one person, uh, the, the professor, and other person, the student, but also among the student themselves. Uh, so this reciprocal tuning, which we learn as humans in the family, which we learn with friends, uh, we also learn it in the classroom. And what we really learn, I think, in the classroom is to share gestures of uh, discoveries, gestures of research. Uh, people can give methodology on how to do research, on how to find out about things. But I think the best way is just to uh, see somebody do it, to do it with somebody who does it, just like cooking. Uh, and sharing these gestures is uh, brings the, the core of what's, uh, what is about in education. It's much more than transmitting knowledge. It's about, well, there's a famous anthropologist, um, uh, Tim Ingold, who uh, wrote a beautiful article on uh, conceiving of uh, education from transmission of information or transmission of knowledge to, he talks about an education of attention. We learn how to be attentive, how to be attentive to what, uh, and how to be attentive together, how to be attentive to each other. That's what we learn in the classroom. And this cannot be replaced by MOOCs. So great, MOOCs are fantastic things, uh, but just as fantastic, if not uh, much more, uh, what we share together when we share gestures of research, that's what classroom provides. And this uh, hopefully will never be uh, replaced by anything else. 
Fantastic. And so this, um, some of what you said carries through into the next chapter as well. Um, this is a chapter that does a lot of kinds of work that we won't have time to talk about in any detail. It's a chapter on the micropolitics of attention, and it talks about lots of things listeners might be interested in and that I'll direct them to the book to read more about, including kinds of ecologies, managerial and radical, um, and the ways that they're dynamically complementary. And I'm not going to say more about them, um, except to say that listeners who are particularly interested in what we're talking about when we talk about ecology um, and sort of how those different notions might interact with each other, will find a lot um, on that in this chapter, chapter five. But there's also um, really interesting attention here paid toward care, right? Attention as care. And something surprising or potentially surprising to readers happens in this chapter. Here, you raise the notion of free-floating attention, right? The idea that by not paying attention to what someone's trying to tell us, we'll potentially be able to better understand the meaning of their message. And this has um, roots roots in and implications for psychoanalysis. Um, It's also related to the importance of, and potentially the liberatory importance of, distraction, So Eve, free-floating attention, what's going on there? And how is distraction emancipatory? Yeah. Yeah. That's, um, thanks for asking this because since I wrote that book uh, in France, a number of people have asked me to talk about attention. It's becoming quite a sort of a hot topic here. So everybody talks about a crisis of attention and then they have me come to talk about this crisis of attention. And uh, more and more, uh, I think that talks on on attention, um, even the one I'm trying to to propose myself, are being recuperated, are being recycled, are being reappropriated by quite uh, reactionary agendas. And I think you spot the reactionary agenda on on, on attention uh, when you see people talk uh, sort of... uh, uh, irreflectively about distraction. Now, what I'd like to do is just to, to think about what it means to be distracted. And there's one book now, of course, I forgot who wrote it, it's a philosopher in, uh, in, in, uh, on the West Coast, I think, of the United States, who wrote a book on, on distraction. And he starts by saying, oh, uh, what does it mean to be distracted? Or what would it mean to be inattentive? Can we be not attentive? To anything. And if you think about it, it's very difficult. I mean, I guess after years of training of meditation, uh, it's not my case, but one says that people can sort of empty their minds. All right. So maybe uh, people after 30 years of uh, deep meditation far in the Far East, they manage not to be uh, attentive. But being distracted is very different from that. It's not not to think. It's just to think about something else. And to think about something else than what? To think about something else than what a person or an authority wants you to think about. So the distraction doesn't exist in itself. It only exists within a, re- within a relationship of power. And the definition of distraction is being attentive to something else than what the authority wants you to be, to be thinking about. 
And uh, as much as, again, in the classroom, we can say, oh, I'm sort of sad when I talk and students talk at the same time and I assume they talk about something different, so it makes me sad and I don't particularly like it. Uh, yet I recognize that maybe they have more important things to, to think about and that I use my authority to say in this space, I'm the authority and I tell you we should think about this text that we're reading now and not about other things, which again, may be more important to you, but here in this context, I'm the, the in the position of authority. So maybe it's not bad in itself to have authority, but we understand how uh, it can be uh, quite debatable and that in some circumstances, not to be attentive to what the authority wants you to be attentive to can be a form of em emancipation. So that would be the sort of the, the first uh, general thing on, on distraction. Uh, the other one is that, uh, as you said, if you go through a number of things done in psychoanalysis, this free-floating attention, for instance, uh, it tells you that uh, by not being not paying close attention or not focalizing, I think the, 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 the problem is to confuse being attentive to being focused or to being concentrated of something. And when I was talking about reactionary attitude, I think there's a concentrationist uh, approach to attention, which uh, brings an equation between being attentive and being concentrated. And for that, it's a very moralistic approach, which says being attentive is being concentrated, and being concentrated is good, and not being concentrated, being distracted, it's bad or it's evil. Uh, so that's what I'm trying to, to move away from. Um, Floating, free-floating attention is that you may hear different things in somebody speaking or in a text if you, again, if you are slightly distracted or if you think about something else. And I'm referring to one uh, famous, at least in France, but I think maybe in U.S. universities also, a uh, critic of the 1970s called Roland Barthes, B-R. B-A-R-T-H-E-S, Roland Barthes, who was very influential for a number of people to talk about literature. And you can very well say that the way we read literature now has been shaped by uh, what Roland Barthes and a few other people have taught us. And one of the things he teaches us is that uh, reading a book, when reading a book, is just as important to lift your eyes from the book than to uh, stick your eyes on the lines of the book. And it's the back and forth movement between paying close attention to the book and uh, drifting away from the book, looking at your environment, looking at who lives around you, looking at the problems of, our, of, our, of your own time. And it's this back and forth movement between distraction and concentration that makes it interesting to read books. And so this gesture of uh, well, I pay attention to this, but at the same time, I'm thinking about something else. Uh, yes, it is a distraction, and yet it is this, the back and forth movement which, which makes for uh, interesting uh, reading. So again, to sort of de-demonize distraction in the current uh, moralizing talk about uh, attention as having to be a form of focalization and only that and a form of concentration, uh, I think politically, it's quite important to, to say that uh, also. And there's maybe another, another point, which maybe we'll, we'll, we'll discuss later on, about um, uh, background attention. What does it mean to pay attention to backgrounds? Uh, well, all right. Oh, let's discuss it so, now. Yeah, I yeah, love this. Because, Talk about um, background. Again, in this concentrationist approach to uh, attention, uh, it's an assumption, just like it's an assumption that it's bad to be distracted. Uh, it's an assumption that... Uh, we are attentive or we pay attention to objects 
of attention. And in the way of uh, what German philosophy of the, of the Gestalt of psychology would, would develop, you say, oh, you're attentive to figures. Okay, What is it to develop knowledge? To develop knowledge is to extract relevant figures from backgrounds. Uh, and you could say the whole history of what we call science, uh, it has been to extract figures, figures not only in terms of concept or in terms of things to see, but in terms also of numbers. Okay, Science has been extracting uh, figures, objects, and quantification of objects from what originally looks as just a background. Uh, so it's great, obviously. It's fantastic to do that. That gives us a tremendous power. That's a joy in itself to do it and so forth. But it equates being attentive to being attentive to figures. The background as such, what does it mean to be attentive to the background? We can see that when we look at paintings. Okay, you see the, the portrait of a king or the portrait of a beautiful young man, and you can look at the background. You can look at the decor. You can see, oh, he painted a little hill at the back, and there's a cloud and so forth. So you can do that. But what you do then is, it's already good, but you transform the cloud or the hill into another figure. So you pay attention to figures that are in the background, but by paying attention to them, you transform into, into figures. Um, what would be paying attention to the background? And I think that here we have to move away from the, 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 the traditional focus of uh, attention being approached in terms of visual, of visuality. To, uh, to pay attention is to focus okay, with your eyes. Uh, to other senses, um, smells or even here, hearing, but smell is even is even better. Uh, very often, we feel awkward uh, before even identifying or focusing on the type of smell. That just oh, this stinks! It stinks here. I think in English you have the expression right. This stinks. Uh, you may not know what caused the stink. You may mm -hmm. not see uh, where it comes from, but you have this intuition. Oh, it stinks. Uh, and I think, well, there's a, a wonderful book called The Spell, the, the oh, I forgot now, sorry, my memory is, is bad, but the, uh, David Abram wrote a wonderful book uh, on, on this, on how our whole civilization uh, has cast a spell on itself uh, by paying too much attention on what we say, what we write, on our symbols, again, on the figure that we generate among us to communicate. And we lose uh, the awareness of the environment as such. We lose the awareness of these backgrounds, whereas these backgrounds are crucial. We cannot sustain our life without a certain sensitivity to our, to our backgrounds. And Abram says that the, the, the shaman, or certain forms of thought that we have disqualified as unscientific, as primitive, as spiritualist, or whatever. In a way, shamans were representing this awareness of an environment, this awareness, call it nature, call it ecosystems, call it environment, call it background, whatever. Uh, uh, this awareness is more than the, the figure we, we extract out of it. And if I can say just one more thing on that, there's a, a French philosopher um, called course, um, yeah. Simondon, Gilbert Simondon, who wrote a lot. Yay, oh, yeah, I was yeah, hoping really cool. you were going to bring him to, up. To Sorry, I stopped. It's right. been translated finally, <laughs> and everybody should read Simondon because it's really the coolest thing. So he wrote a lot about individuation. That was one of his uh, dissertations, but he wrote another dissertation on the mode of existence of technical objects. So it's a fantastic uh, analysis and uh, 
uh, understanding of our relation to technical objects. And at the end of this book, in the last part of this book, um, he says in a way what I what I just said now, which I'm stealing from him, even he says it in, in different words, is that um, science consists in extracting figures from the background. But he says then, how do we apprehend? How do we, uh, I would say, pay attention to this background? For him, it's through aesthetic, through the arts, or through religion. What is God, no matter if you believe it's Allah, if it's Jesus Christ, if it's Buddha, whatever, uh, in all cultures, uh, God is more than the figure to which you can reduce it. Uh, God is precisely what's left over after you've extracted figure. Well, there is something bigger. There is something that you cannot locate. There is something eternal. There is something more fundamental, whatever you want to call it. Uh, let's say it's, it's this divine principle of God, and it's precisely paying attention to God in this sense is paying attention to this background, which we don't see as such. So maybe religions do that uh, in certain civilization. Maybe the fact that, at least in France, a religion have been looked down upon um, for a long time as something very primitive, and now we're all atheist and emancipated, and we don't believe in the superstition. Uh, okay, that a good, a lot of good effects of liberating, emancipating us from the control of priests and uh, and prejudices and so forth. But maybe the price to pay is not to be able to pay attention to backgrounds as such. And again, back we may not care about, but environment we better care about because what's hitting us now in the face is our carelessness, our inattentiveness, our lack of being attentionate to the environments in which we live because we reduce them to figures. And it's what is called now extractivism. You, you interviewed Anat Singh for a fantastic book on, on mushroom, the end of the world. Um, uh, extractivism consists precisely of what we do all the time with, with attention. And it's great. We are uh, intelligent because we manage to extract figures from background. That's fantastic. But we forget that the background deserves respect, uh, or care, or whatever you want to call it, as such. And ecology uh, would be precisely to pay attention to the background as such, to environment as such, beyond what resources, what figures, in the short run, I can extract from it in order to be happy in the next year, uh, 10 years, 100 years. Uh, and now the big uh, problem of climate change and the, the loss, the, the, the collapsing of biodiversity, I think, is the price we pay for our incapacity to develop tools to pay attention to backgrounds and environments. And I think these tools were probably there in religion, but capitalism is eroding all that and hasn't replaced it with other forms of uh, paying care, paying attention or caring for the environment. And in a way, if the book is called uh, The Ecology of Attention, is also to bring that in perspective. We need to develop new attentional tools in order better to pay attention to our environments in order to stop messing it up as we're currently doing. Okay, so this is great. What I want to ask you in a moment, because this brings us really nicely to the conclusion of the book, right? Um, so in a moment, I'm going to ask you what some of the tools are, right, that we might develop um, in moving toward what you call an attention ecology. Um, and I'm spelling that um, in my mind, E-C-H-O, 
L-O-G-Y, right? Echo. Um, so you, you talk about this in the conclusion, and I think this is really, really nicely, um, or it comes really nicely from what you've just been saying. But I just want to mark for listeners um, some of what you talked about. Um, and, and I do apologize for um, yelling in glee when you mentioned Simon Dahl. <laughs> I am a Simon Dahl fangirl. Um, and I'm also a Flusser okay. fangirl, right? And, and Flusser is another... Yeah. Uh, a scholar that you bring up in the book and some of what you talked about um, just now in terms of gods, right? Um, and the, the living with an environment where there are gods kind of in the ecology, in the environment, um, in a way, is also something that comes out of Flusser's work Absolutely. on gesture, um, specifically, right, in terms of how he's interested in the reflexive nature of what we're doing when we pay attention to gesture. And I mentioned this also because um, reflexive attention and the process that you mentioned of individuation, right, um, which uh, Simon Dahl writes a lot about, um, we see attention to this in the third part of the book. Now, we won't have time to talk about this in any detail, but I just want to mention for listeners who are interested in um, individuation and individuating processes that come from paying attention um, in what we're talking about when we talk about the individual in the laboratory. There are chapters on this in part three of the book. So chapter six looks specifically at the question of what happens in me when I pay attention to something. And it takes us into studies of neuroscience and it takes us into the laboratory. And then chapter seven um, pays special attention to what you call reflexive attention, right? There's a kind of dynamic that happens when I give my attention to what I value and then I value what I give my attention to. Um, and you talk about this reflexivity. Um, you talk about um, uh, sort of uh, agreeing to attend to something and the political and liber you know, liberatorial consequences of kind of agreeing to give attention. Okay, so we could talk, Eve, for like five hours, right, about any of those things. And you know that I could talk with you and I would love to hear everything that you have to say about Simon Don and about Flusser. But because we are almost at the conclusion of our conversation, if you can believe that, what I want to go back to um, is what you were just talking about before. Um, when we come to the conclusion of the book, as we're now at the conclusion of our conversation, you bring us back to the different scales that we've talked about in the previous sections of the book, um, the collective scale, the joint, the individual, the reflexive. And here you move out into a discussion of the ecological scale. Now, Earlier in the book, as um, listeners who become readers will find, you talk about not just um, economy and ecology, but also ecosophy and the different ways of understanding attention that move us away from a kind of capitalist or, or economic focus. And you end with what you call attention ecology, coming from echo, right? The word echo. So you've already talked a little bit about the importance of this, but as a way to kind of put a conclusion on our conversation and think about how to move forward, can you talk a little bit about what you think is most interesting about an attention ecology, right, made of uh, with and of echoes, and also what some of the tools are that might get us toward a future that looks a little bit more nourishing in, in these terms than it might sure, otherwise look? Um, 
Yeah, maybe I'll, I'll, I'll address that this this notion of, of tools um, through the, the the layers that I um, that you just uh, re- reminded us now. Um, uh, I think we should respect the pluralism uh, of attention, not only among ourselves, that we all of us, each of us is attentive to slightly different things. And that's what makes all of us commonly much richer, uh, but also the pluralism of attention within each one of us. Uh, we are not uh, unified, I think, in terms of attention, and it's probably a good thing. Um, so this ecology, uh, spelled E-C-H-O, ecology or ecosophy, also spelled E-C-H-O, is to say that it's a matter of tuning, that it's a matter of resonance between me and myself, between me and my loved ones, between me and my close environment, between me and uh, what I hear uh, from from uh, further away. Uh, So to think in terms of tuning and echo and resonance, again, it puts uh, to the forefront the issue of media. Uh, And uh, I can say already that will save us time for later, because I know that at the end of the interview, you ask what what you're going to do later. So after this book, as a matter of fact, uh, (laughs) I developed a long research on trying to make sense of what we call media. So obviously, I'm not the first one. There are people like uh, Marshall McLuhan, Flusser, Kittler. I mean, a lot of people have said fantastic things about media. For a strange reason, reason these people have not been very popular in France. Uh, so France has is very often uh, used. French theory, French thinking, French philosophy, French language uh, production is used or famous through people like Guattari, Félix Guattari, uh, Derrida, Deleuze, and all that. And... When people talk about media, they use these theories. But in France, media as such is not very much used. So the next project after this, this work on attention is to try to see what can we do to restructure this echo chamber, to restructure this mediatic uh, enthrallment or mediatic uh, envoûtement or spells, because I think politically this is the first thing we have to do. We're not going to go anywhere uh, before uh, we restructure that. And for me, the, the victory of, of your current president is just, but it's not the only thing. The, the, the high scores reached by far-right parties in Europe is just as sad and as worrying. Uh, and this, I think, comes from many reasons, but one of the crucial points here is the need to restructure this echo chamber. So I think to talk about an ecology of attention, ECO, uh, means to talk about an ecology, uh, the logic of how, how uh, ideas and slogans and the stupidity and intelligence resonate or doesn't resonate uh, in our environments. And this means drastically reforming, drastically changing the infrastructure of the media. So I would say politically, this is the first task. Now, uh, this is only one of the tasks in this pluralism I was uh, thinking, I was uh, evoking earlier. So as you said, a whole part of the book is about joint attention, how in Uh, political parties, how in political organizations, associations, how do we pay attention to each other? So there's a lot of other things to to change here, but I'll skip on that now. And I would just say about the, the individual level, uh, one of the previous uh, book I wrote was about Spinoza's tradition, Spinoza philosophy, this philosopher from the uh, 17th century in, uh, in Holland. And he was famous or infamous for denying human free will. 
for Spinoza, uh, the universe is like a big uh, body or a big machine where every effect has its cause. And my decision to do something, my supposedly free will to do something, well, it has a cause. And it's by understanding these causes that we will uh, be better off. Uh, I believe that also in terms of attention. I don't think our attention is free at any moment. I don't think now I am free to think about what I would want without any constraints. I'm doing an interview with you. You ask me certain questions. I'm trying to develop certain arguments that are in the book and so forth. So you could say I'm a little machine that runs on his talk on attention. And I, would be, I wouldn't be offended if you said that. This machine, however, can decide now that tomorrow I will not open my computer or I will uh, put my telephone somewhere where it won't disturb me. Uh, so I'm not free to pay attention to what I want right now, but I have an amount of power in doing what? In restructuring tomorrow's environment. So what I was saying earlier about the need to restructure the echo chamber of the media sphere, I can, and that's going to be very difficult. I mean, we, we have to work on that, but that's not going to happen tomorrow, uh, even if it's already happening through a lot of ways, including things like the New Books Network, which allows a lot of people to discover books uh, in, a, in a free fashion. Again, that's something absolutely uh, marvelous. Uh, but these political changes, they will take time. On the other hand, at another level, which is not incompatible, which is just different level, uh, we can make a number of individual decisions, again, not on the spot, not right now, but about what our environment will be tomorrow. Uh, and I think a lot of what's very trendy now in terms of uh, mindfulness, in terms of meditation, in terms of all this, it's an awareness. Again, it's very, I think it's very interesting. I don't have any uh, disrespect for that. Uh, it is part of being aware that we can uh, at a certain level, uh, control our environment in order to uh, pay better attention to our environment also. So among these tools, they go to a lot of levels. We should be wary of any moralistic approach, which presupposes free will. Oh, that kid didn't pay attention. He could have, he should have paid attention to what I was saying, but he did not. And it's his fault, or it's the fault of his nervous system. So I'm going to feed him Ritalin so that it'll be better. Uh, no, we have to find environmental uh, solutions to environmental problems. Uh, and I think that's why uh, the, the ecology of attention is both uh, finding a good ecology for a collective and individual attention and paying attention to environment, to ecologies uh, as such. So Eve, thank you so much. There's obviously so much more that we could talk about that's in the book, um, but we're now at the conclusion of our conversation. Is there anything in particular, um, especially perhaps for listeners who haven't yet had a chance to become readers, that we didn't have a chance to talk about, but that you'd like to um, talk about, that you'd like to bring up or raise for listeners? No, no, you went over the book in very masterful fashion. Yeah. That was very good. Thank you very much. So you've already talked a little bit about um, your next project or a, the new project, right? Trying to make sense of what we call media. Um, did you want to say a little bit more about that? Or um, if not, is there anything else that you're working on now that we should be yeah. looking okay. eagerly toward um, consuming 
with our attention yeah. in the future. Well, I always have a lot of uh, project running currently. So and at the same time, so I'm doing something on alter modernity again to try to reread the 18th century, uh, not through modern or anti-moderns, but alter modernity. It's something I take from Negri and Hart. Uh, I'm doing something on political, uh, poetical media activism and so forth. This project, I mean, this, this book on, on media, it's called Mediarchy, just like hierarchy or monarchy. And it tries to, uh, again, bring four levels where we can understand media uh, and, uh, again, understand better how to work on this restructuring of the echo chamber. So that's a book that I already finished, but hopefully it's going to come out next year, uh, again, with the good folks at Polity Press who published this book, and I'm very uh, grateful to them. But maybe if there's just a few, one more minute to talk about something, it's not the notion of, I mean, we talked a lot about attention, and that's what the book is about. Uh, we talked a little bit, and I'm, I'm very grateful that you brought it up, uh, about distraction and being distracted. Is just as important as being attentive, but I think the next frontier for me uh, that will be much harder to recuperate by uh, by uh, reactionary agenda is uh, the notion of curiosity. And I think that people like Graham Burnett, yourself, and a few other people, uh, the, the Journal Cabinet, for instance, and there, there are a whole bunch of scholars out there who explicitly or not so explicitly put curiosity even higher than uh, attention. I mean, you can, again, you can have an attention economy. You can uh, automatize attention. We didn't talk about this at all, but uh, a lot of things now are ways to uh, automate our, our attention. Uh, I think it would be much more difficult to um, automate curiosity. And why is that? Because curiosity is uh, you paying attention beyond your expectations. And uh, in French, it works better because in French, attention, attention, it's more or less the same word, but expectations is attente, attente, to attend or something. Uh, and so the play between attente, expectations, and attention is much more obvious is French, in French. And I think that one of the dangers uh, among uh, or apart from all the beauties of uh, the digital world that's unfolding for us and that we are unfolding for, for each other is uh, a possible problem in there is the, the vicious circle or the circularity, the feedback effect between expectations and, and desires and attention. And one way to break that circle is to be curious, which is to... Uh, want to pay attention to what you don't even know it exists, to pay attention to what you're not supposed to know, uh, again, to be distracted, but to be distracted against authority, okay, to be curious. Often it's my neighbor who looks through uh, my uh, my uh, key lock. No, you don't say that in English, maybe, but look through the, the, the small window. Keyhole? Key wall, maybe, yeah, or hole in the wall, Key whatever. Hole, actually, so actually. Uh, the, the, usually it's not good for your neighbor to be curious because he's trying or she's trying to find something that uh, he or she's not supposed to find out. But I think it's good for people to be curious, to, again, to uh, uh, distrust authority uh, and to try to see what is uh, trying to be hidden at the moment, but also much more naively just to think that the most interesting things are things not only you don't expect, but you don't know they exist. And how, which kind of tools, again, 
digital tools, algorithmic tools, or uh, intellectual tools, pedagogical tools, what can happen in a classroom that doesn't make so much people uh, uh, knowledgeable, although that's great to be knowledgeable, but you can be knowledgeable by many other ways than going through a teacher who tells you what to be uh, attentive to, but to be curious, how to develop curiosity as that which pushes you beyond uh, expectation. For me, that would be the, the next frontier is to write books about curiosity and not so much about uh, attention. Well, I love that. And so, Eve, thank you so much for taking time away from that work to talk with me today. It's been such a pleasure and I'm so grateful. Um, best of luck with your future work. Thank you very much, Nappy. Thanks for the, the program. That's fantastic. You've been listening to the New Books Network seminar. Thanks so much for joining us and come back and listen to us again next time.